Please open to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, once again, um, as we take up our study here, Jesus really, really <laughs> giving some uh, deep teaching to the Pharisees. In the process, of course, we're learning a lot, and they're feeling a lot guilty. Because Jesus is really hammering on them. Uh, they didn't, they thought they were okay. I mean, they thought they were all right. They didn't think they had any problems. You know, we're, we're, we're within the tolerance of the law, so everything's good. Jesus gets through running them through the buzzsaw, and they wish they hadn't started this project. You know, so, so uh, we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 19, and uh, Jesus is teaching on the subject of marriage. And uh, so uh, in the process, he hits on the uh, idea of divorce as well. But we're going to take our, our message to this morning, beginning at verse 9, and we're going to go through verse 12. And of course, you will see this. this will wind up this particular uh, pericope of what Jesus is talking about here uh, on the subject. Okay. So those willing and able to, I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please. We're going to start reading again. I said in verse 9, we've kind of looked at this verse before. Uh, we're going to pick it up there, and then we're going to see how he plays it out here through the 12th verse. Here we go, then. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man... And his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it so. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be gathered together in your house today, and we, we consider your word. We, it's a treasure. It, it truly is a treasure. Your word is. It's valuable. It's invaluable, as a matter of fact. We can't place uh, a, a, a value on it. We thank you for its instruction. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that it gives us guides. It gives us footing, something solid in life that agrees with our purpose which is to glorify you. It agrees with our calling, which is to praise your name no matter what our circumstances are. It is all evidence that ultimately the only thing we need and must have is a relationship. And as a result of that, fellowship. The greatest source of our joy and our comfort and our consolation in life is that we know you and we commune with you and you commune with us. And out of that sweet fellowship really comes everything that we need in life. Help us, O oh God, not to just say it, but to believe it. And not just to believe it, but believe it with all of our heart, mind, and soul. To love you with everything within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and uh, please be seated uh, this morning. So, it's time to wind it up. All right? <laughs> 
Time to, time to move on. And I'll tell you, we have not uncovered everything in this passage of Scripture. And when I get done preaching today, you're going to have more questions than when we started. Okay? I'm going to leave you hanging. Just to be real honest with you. I am going to hang you out. And, and you're going to leave as service this morning, and you're going to say, I don't think, I, uh, I don't think we, we, we understand everything that's in here. And that's fine. That's fine. Maybe, maybe it'll encourage you to do a little more research on your own when we, when we wind this up this morning. There are a lot of questions. There are a lot of principles. There's a lot of variations in this particular subject uh, of marriage and divorce that we've been looking at. And, and not all of it needs to be investigated. And, 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 and I'll tell you what, and I told you before, I don't have all the answers. All right, along these lines. I don't. I don't. God does. And, uh, and he's the one we appeal to. So in the beginning, God said, I'm going to create man. And I'm going to make him in my own image. That's powerful. I mean, you know, all that we are and everything that we consider in the word of God has to come from this fundamental, very basic principle laid down in the book of Genesis that we have been created in the image of God because everything flows from there. Everything. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Everything that God wants, designs and wants us to know comes from the fact we have been created in the image of God. We are not evolved. We are the image of God. Interestingly to me, God only made a male from the dust of the ground. That's always perplexed me somewhat. I'm, I'm anxious to get to heaven uh, and discuss this a little bit. But interesting to me, God made Adam from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils, the Bible says... The breath of lives, and the Hebrew word there is plural, not life as it is often translated in your Bible, but lives, plural lives. And the Bible then goes on to describe him becoming a living soul. Now, we know that he is the only one of all that God created, of all the animals, of all the creatures that God made, that became a living soul. None, nothing else bore that particular title as being a living soul. Now, what is also interesting to me is that in creation, that he created the fish and the birds on day five. It's always been strange to me. <laughs> the fish and the birds were not created on the sixth day. They were created on the fifth day. And it's always been a conundrum to me is why... The birds were thrown in there with the fish. Okay? But then you go on to the sixth day, and you find that God creates all the other animals, the dust of the ground, including man, on the sixth day. But the birds were already flying around. The fish were already in the ocean doing what fish do. Breathing air through the water somehow. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. But, but so on the sixth day, he creates the rest of the creatures, but he creates them from the ground. And then he goes to Adam and says, I want you to start naming all these things that I've created. So Adam does. Goes through. And he begins to notice a, a pattern. All these creatures seem to be in pairs. Strangely, 
There's a male and there's a female. And so Adam is, you know, he's not a dummy. He's, 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 he's taking into consideration. He's naming all these things. And he gets to the end. They've all been named. Everything's been said. There's nothing left to do. And there's no female for him. Everybody else. That pairs. Male and female. Reproducing. I'm Adam. I'm by myself. I don't have a mate. So what does God do? Does he go to the dust of the earth and make another human being? Strangely not. Always perplexed me. <laughs> now I know, I know that indirectly, Eve is of the dust of the ground. The Bible says that, you know, we're, we're of the dust of the ground. He describes us as such. But he goes to Adam and he puts Adam into this deep sleep. And then he takes part of Adam's body out somehow, some way. And the Bible says he fashions, he makes a female from, from Adam. From, you know, Adam's of the dust of the ground, breathing into the nostril of life. And, but he, he takes Eve out of Adam rather than going to the ground and making another human being. So he takes part of Adam out and he makes a female... And then he brings them back together to make them one. They were two. They were two. But God took the two and in his divine wisdom brought them back together and made them one. And Adam said, this is bone of my bone, and this is flesh of my flesh. We're one. What Adam said. Brought them back together. Adam was not, even though he was in the image of God, there was a part of the image of God in which he was that was not complete. How's that? Functionally, functionally, Adam was not the image of complete image of God. Functionally, Adam could not function as the image of God. The woman whom God created, whom God made from Adam's flesh and blood, made Adam able to functionally be the image of God. Because the woman could do things that Adam couldn't do, yet God could do. Well, you see, what do you mean? Adam, though created in the image of God, could not reproduce. Adam, though created in the image of God, could not breastfeed. <laughs> Adam, though created in the image of God, could not nurture a child. Like the woman. So the woman completed the functional image of God. They became one. The purpose of marriage is to complete the functional image of God. The functional Why is it? You remember what God is. God is what? What is God? He is the great three in one. 
He is the Trinity. But He is one. Everything about God is oneness. Everything about God is unity. Everything about God is coming together. Do you remember what Jesus said when he said when he said that we were saved? He said this, "In that day you shall know that I am in the Father, ye in me, and I in you." Jesus described salvation as being a oneness or a unity of us being brought into Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ being brought into us. God's whole thinking, because of the very character and nature of His being, the great three in one is singleness, is oneness, is unity. From beginning to end, that is the goal and desire of God. And that's what happens in a marriage. Adam and Eve were part of each other, and and and, and then you know, and then, and then God bind, God took part of Adam, put and, and made Eve out of him, and then bound them together into oneness. And the only thing that can break the unity between a married couple and then the marriage has been consummated is death. Let me repeat, because we're going to take off. The only thing in the scriptures that God allows for the dissolving of a marriage that he has brought together is death. That's it. The only thing that breaks the bond, the flesh bone bond that God has established is death. Jesus understood that principle, and that's why he said that, that marriage is one male, one biological male, joining with a biological female, and then God binds them together, and he said, let no man separate what God has bound together, period. No man, no man, no man, no man. Paul understood that in his teaching in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. It says there, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Paul understood what Jesus was talking about. Paul repeated what Jesus was talking about and described it. He says, death breaks our, our flesh bone bonds and then we are free, he says, to marry whoever we will except they have to be a believer. Okay? Paul understood what Jesus was teaching. Now, I'm, sell, I'm telling you all of this so that you will understand verse 10. Okay? So then we go to verse 10 and we pick it up again, uh, or, or pardon me, verse 9, and it says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. All of this is a setup for what I'm going to tell you in verse 9. Number one, God's standards are always going to be perfection. God's standards, no matter what they are, are always going to demonstrate God's perfections and God's righteous standards. Always, always. 
God's standards are always going to require you to be perfect. That's the way God is. That's, that's righteousness. When you, are, when you are obeying God, doing all that God wants you to do, that is called righteousness. When God created the earth and he created everything and, 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 and he was all done on the seventh day, he said it was all good. It was all, that was a standard. God looked at what he said, here's my standard, and by my standard, everything that I made is good. Whose standard? God's standard. By God's standard, it was all good. God has not reduced his standards just because sin has entered the world. God has not lowered his standards. God has not changed his standards in the original design and creation. God has not changed his standards. What, when, when we hear God's standards, though... Because of our our self-love and our self-justifying and our self-righteous self, his standards often sound harsh. Let me repeat that. God's standards, because we have a sin nature in rebellion to God, is always going to see God feel like God's standards are too harsh, too high, and impossible. That's the flesh. We're always going to respond to God's standards that way. Because of our sin nature. Our old man. Our fleshly nature. We want to, see, we want to look good. We want to feel good about ourselves. And so we convince ourselves that what we're doing is right. And that what we're doing is good. And I'm going to tell you why. We don't like anybody to tell us we're wrong. Let me repeat that. I don't think, I don't think you heard me. We don't like anybody telling us we made a mistake. We don't like anybody telling us that we're wrong. We don't want anybody to tell us what we're thinking is wrong. We don't want anybody telling us what we're feeling is wrong. Now, I will even go so far to say, if you rebel against that, you're wrong. Okay. (laughs) We don't like it. It may be good for us. It may be, criti- it may be positive uh, critical uh, criticism that we need to hear. It may be constructive. We still don't like it, folks. I don't like it. I don't want, don't you come up and tell me I'm wrong. I, you know, I don't like to hear that. God's standards haven't changed, though. And Jesus was pounding on these Pharisees because they thought they were right. And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's what verse 9 is all about. Jesus is saying here, hey, look, if you get divorced and remarried, you've committed adultery. And they thought they, they, no, 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 no. That's not what they were thinking. Jesus said, if if your marriage has been consummated and you divorce and, 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 and you get remarried, you are committing adultery. Adultery. He shot down these Pharisees so bad. He called them adulterers, and they were so far, feeling like they were so far from that. You know, but he, they, they thought Jesus was just, just bold and, and blatant, and he was publicly calling them adulterers. And that just burned them. That just burned them. You see, divorce didn't break their marriage vows, nor their flesh bone union that God had made. Didn't do that. 
The union was intact until one of them dies, and to remarry is to commit adultery. And not only is divorce a sin, but remarrying is a sin because it usually results in the sin of adultery. Remarriage is not an option unless one of the other spouse dies. That is God's plan. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried, and to be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. Again, in Mark chapter 10, it says, And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife, and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband, and be married to another, she commits adultery. So, Paul and Jesus uh, prohibit remarriage uh, after, uh, after a divorce. The only difference is that Jesus calls it adultery and, and Paul just leaves the adultery out in his description. And so, the Pharisees were talking about consummated marriages. Okay? Consummated marriages. And Jesus says, here's your answer to your question. Is not you cannot get married, uh, remarried. You, know, you cannot get divorced for any any reason you want to, because what God has put together, let no man put asunder. That's my answer. That's Jesus's answer to their question. But here's where we go. Here's where I want to go, uh, and we're going to take off here. Jesus is talking to Jews. That is important. The, the, the context and the culture is always important. Jesus was talking to Jews. And the Jews had what they called a betrothal period before you consummated your marriage. The betrothal period was not the same as being consummated in marriage. And Jesus understood the difference between the two. Now, one of the things that's always bothered me about verse 9 here is that Jesus chose to use a particular Greek word here. And notice the exception, what we call the exception clause. In my version, it says, except for immorality. The Greek word there is pornea. Okay? Pornea. It's the same word that Jesus used in, in the Sermon on the Mount, except for the reason of unchastity, and the Greek word is pornea. And he used that word on purpose. Jesus was not permitting divorce on the grounds of adultery, which is, which is having sex after marriage has been consummated, but he was allowing for divorce on grounds of fornication. Fornication, it's interesting that he uses this word pornea. Fornication could take place during the betrothal period because fornication was having sex outside of consummated marriage. The exception clause here that Jesus is dealing with is with a betrothed wife or even a betrothed husband. That's what he's talking about. 
this is peculiar. What I'm sharing with you is peculiar to Matthew. He's the only one who includes the exception clause. The only one who includes the exception clause in both the Sermon on the Mount and here in verse 9. He's the only one of the gospel writers who talks about Joseph's intent to divorce his betrothed wife, Mary. Because the Bible says he is a righteous man. He's a righteous man. Wanting to obey the laws, he understood it. In this particular passage of Scripture. I am taking a different stand than I have taken in the past on this particular passage of Scripture. The King James says, says except it be for fornication, fornia. The New American says, except for immorality, fornia. The ESV says, except for sexual immorality, fornia. And the King James, or the NIV says, except for marital unfaithfulness. The Greek word for adultery is moikia, moikia. That is the word used to describe someone who is married having sex without someone who is their spouse. A married person having sex with someone other than their spouse is called adultery. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, it says, for, notice Matthew 15, 19, it says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, morkia, the Greek word, fornications, pornia, the Greek word, thefts, faultlessness, and blasphemies. Jesus is speaking here and he says, look, I'm going to make a difference between adultery, morkia, and fornication, pornia. That's what Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter 15 and 19. He says they're two different things among the sins. And then in Matthew 9, it says, 19, 9, it says, I say to you, whoever commits, puts away his wife, except for fornication, pornea, pornea, shall marry another, com, uh, committeth adultery, morkia, and who also marrieth her which is put away, doth commit morkia, adultery. Uh, same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of pornea, fornication, causes her to commit adultery, morkia. And whoever, soever shall marry his wife, her, uh, marry her, that is, divorce, committeth morkia. Each time, each time that Jesus Christ used the word pornea or fornication, he used either morkia, or a verb form of Marquia in the same sentence. That's a pretty good clue that Matthew was following Jesus' example here of making them two different terms, meaning two different things. Matthew is recording what Jesus said. Matthew is making a distinction, just like Jesus made, between adultery and fornication. And, and, and wherever Matthew uses the word morkia, it always is in the sense of adultery and never in the sense of fornication. And the point is that if Jesus were referring to the sin of adultery in the exception clause, he would have used the normal uh, Greek word morkia. But he didn't. That's always been something that I've struggled with. 
And, and another thing that I've stated over and over is that Matthew's audience is Jewish. And he's trying to reach the Jews for Christ. And, and he's coming from a Jewish perspective. The word pornea, from a Jewish perspective, would largely be interpreted as premarital sex. Sex before marriage is fornication. Now, in the Jewish culture, there was a period before marriage called betrothal. Before the marriage was completely consummated, the, the marriage would be consummated when the, when, the, when, the, when the contract and between the two was secured and when it became public and when there was a sexual act after that. That was a consummated marriage. The betrothal was a legally binding contract that involved the, the man who was going to marry uh, the young lady and the young lady's father. And generally the contract of betrothal made between uh, what we would call the fiancé and, 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 and the girl's uh, father involved a large exchange of money. But it was a contract. It was looking forward to the day when it would be when their marriage would be public and it would be consummated. But it was a betrothal period. Now, when we go back to the example of Joseph and Mary, you can do that in Matthew chapter 1. We see where all this comes together. Here's where we find the illustration. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they had come together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Did you notice what was said there? Let me repeat that again. And let me look particularly at verse 19 where it says, And Joseph, her husband. They were not consummated in marriage yet, but Joseph was called what? Moses was called her husband during the betrothal period. In the betrothal period, they were considered to be husband and wife, legally. And the Bible refers to that here in this description of, of, of Joseph being considered the husband of Mary, even though the marriage, been, the marriage had not been consummated. And so Joseph was doing what he had, what Jesus was describing here, as the right in the betrothal period to divorce Mary. Completely right, completely legal. Everything above board. Because he was a, the Bible says, a righteous man. Seeking to do what was legally, what he was legally able to do. And so he was going to put her away secretly. That means he was going to give her a bill of divorcement. He, he had a legal bill that he could draw up of divorce during the betrothal period. And that's what Jesus was talking about. That's what the exception clause refers to. It, ref, refers, to, it refers to a betrothal period. Jesus was saying you could, he's not going to bind you to being married to someone that you know who has committed fornication. You're released from that. So I'm taking a little bit different position as I, as I look at the whole total view 
of what the Bible is teaching on this particular subject. These things are peculiar to Matthew. They're peculiar to him because he is speaking to Jews and Jesus understands that. So, let's look at this then. What happens then? What happens then? What's the practical summation? If people who are married get divorced and remarry, Jesus says they have committed adultery. In the Greek, that is an aorist tense. That is an aorist tense. It doesn't mean that they, can, that they are committing adultery, committing adultery, committing adultery every time that they have an intimate moment. That's not what he's saying there. Simply, you've heard the people, well, they're living in sin. That's not what Jesus said. They're not, Jesus didn't say they were living in sin. That's not what he said. He said the act of remarriage is an act of adultery. Period. End. Not a continuation of it, but an act. It's an aorist act. It's not a continuation. When you repent of any sin, I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. You are forgiven completely and totally. Totally. Any sin. And that includes the sin of adultery. You are, you know, there may be consequences to that sin, but the Bible is clear that when you go to God and you confess your sins, that the blood of Jesus Christ covers your sins completely and they are cast away from you as far as the east is from the west. Your slate is clean and you start over. Now, there may be consequences. There are always consequences. But the guilt and the shame and the burden of our sins is lifted once we confess our sins and repent of them and receive the forgiveness and the cleansing of God in Jesus Christ. God, out of His mercy and grace, blesses second marriages. Even though they might have started on the right foot. When, when, when those involved are seeking to do the will of God and following God's will and applying God's will, God has promised to bless and does. Out of his mercy and grace, if each spouse is responding to the will of God, God will bless that. Second marriage, those started on the wrong foot. He always blesses those who, do, who, who repent and do His will. He's promised to do that. This is an irreversible promise of God. All sins are a serious offense against God. All sin has as its root selfishness and self-centeredness and self-satisfyingness. All sin is selfish at, the, at, the, at its very root. That's what it is. And God has called us to serve Him and to obey Him regardless of our comfort, regardless of, of whether we think it's for our welfare or not, or whether we think we're happy or not. It doesn't matter. God's primary concern is for us to be holy. And holiness is the result of being obedient to God. That's what holiness is. Where you say, preacher, I haven't, I haven't come to that place yet, but I'm feeling the weight and the burden of the Spirit of my heart in, in, in repentance 
And I want to make a decision for Christ this morning. I don't want to wait any longer. I know I'm wrong. I know I've sinned against God. And God is convicting my sin. And I want to come to Him now. I want to come to Him today. I want to be made right with God today. And we're going to offer you an invitation to Him this morning. An opportunity to trust Christ as your personal Savior. But any act of obedience to God is going to require that you die to self. And a lot of people think, well, I can be saved and, and still serve self. No, you can't. There is no compromise there. All obedience to God, I don't care what it is, all obedience to God requires, at its root, death to self. Because self and serving God can't go in the same boat. Can't be done. It's impossible. Coming to Christ means accepting Christ and all they did on the cross and you absolutely offering nothing else except your faith in Him and your repentance. That's it. That's all. I'm going to ask Brother R.D. to come and help us with our hymn this morning. Jesus Christ did not die for good people. Jesus didn't die for righteous people. Jesus didn't die for moral people. He died for imperfect people of which we all are imperfect people. That's what he died for. And the Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and now we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Sister Georgie Fant used to tell me over and over again, and I loved it. She was right. She used to remind me there's only one sin that God cannot forgive. Only one sin God cannot forgive. She'd tell me that all the time. The sin of unbelief. I said, you know, that's right. That's right. Can't forgive the sin of unbelief. Where are you this morning? I'm going to ask Brother R.D. to introduce our hymn, and then we're going to, well, let's stand first, and he'll introduce the hymn, then we'll pray. 520. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today and to worship you and to praise your holy name. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to realize that we are sinners. We, we forget that. We, 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 we tend to um, justify what we do. Uh, we tend to overlook it. We tend to think that, oh, we're better than we are. We're not, Father. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. That's what we are before we are saved. And even though after we're saved, we still commit sins. Jesus tells us if we come and we confess our sins, that he is righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we start over. We start anew. We pick up. We go on. I pray in greater obedience to you than, than before. That's what it means to repent. Don't do that again. Turn away from that. Reverse your direction. Go in the new light. Walk in the new path. Know the joy of the Lord. Help us to do that, Father. May we receive all the glory from our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Have you failed in your plans?